This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. Has China reached a tipping point that could endanger its growth, social stability, and place in the world? In his weekly column, Bloomberg New Economy editorial director Andy Brown writes about China's Achilles heel. And you should also note that you can sign up for the New Economy Daily Newsletter at Bloomberg.com slash new hyphen economy. I've signed up for it, and I'm getting it every day. Uh, Andy joins us in our interactive broker studio. It's so nice to have you in studio. It's great to be here, Carol, and thanks for signing up for the newsletter. You're welcome. Everybody else should, because I always feel like, and I've said this to you before, that you often bring to the table uh, something that ultimately in a month from now or two months, everybody's talking about, especially when it comes to China. You have insight uh, like no one else, and this story plays to it. Talk to us a little bit about your column. So this this really is the big one. This yeah. is the big tipping point we've been talking about for years. In demographic terms, we've hit peak China. The population is not growing. It's all downhill from now on in. And actually, we're going to get the census results, the latest census results this week. And it's quite possible that those data will show that China's population has already started to shrink. Which is staggering, Tim. Okay, so make the connection between the population loss there and, and what it means for the country's future. So, so, so probably just, just a recap, you had in China a massive population boom in the 60s and 70s, yeah. right? This was Ma, Chairman Mao basically said to Chinese women, it's your patriotic duty to have babies. So in the 60s, Chinese women had, on average, six babies. You then get this doubling of the Chinese population in 30 years to a billion, and they freak out, the party freaks out, and puts in place the most draconian family planning policy in history. One-child family, right? Right. Both of those policies are now coming home to roost with disastrous consequences. So the, the, the boomers, the Mao boomers, are retiring en masse. Meanwhile, the working population is shrinking rapidly, And so you project forward to 2050, whereas today you have eight workers for every one retiree. 2050, you're going to have two workers for every retiree. Who is going to look after the old people? So it's not so much that the population is shrinking, but that the age composition is changing radically. Well, we talked about that in regards to Japan years ago, right? And the impact it had. We talk about it on the U.S. society. I mean, so so can't... Chinese official just say, okay, everybody, go ahead and just more babies now. Well, you talk about <laughs> Japan, it doesn't work. Yeah. I mean, once your population starts shrinking, it's really all over. I mean, you have a situation now in Japan, they try to, of course, encourage uh, uh, part, couples to have children, doesn't work. Uh, right now, something like one in four Japanese women in their 30s are single. They're not, they don't want babies at all. Mm-hmm. They don't want marriage at all. They want a life outside of the family. And that's true in Singapore, it's true in South Korea, it's true in Hong Kong. You know, the the reversing a demographic uh, trend is is virtually impossible. A question that you ask in the column is, can technology offset population Mm. loss? Can it? 
Well, it can, it can to an extent, right? So people say that it's not about the raw numbers now. National power is measured more in terms of technological capability, and that's true. Um, people say, well, why should you worry about you know shrinking workforce? You just deploy robots instead of people. Uh, but that kind of can mitigate. I mean, it can offset uh, population imbalances. Uh, but you know, you look at the problems this creates. Who, who's going to you know? What about the medical system in in, in China? Now, of course, with a, with with uh, retirees, you have a, a associated problems of you know strokes and heart right, disease right. and dementia, and the hospital system right now is struggling to cope. You know, so okay. So we have been for decades, you know this, the world has been fearing China and its might and its economic might. And we have a lot of stories about the Chinese economy getting ready to take over the U.S. economy, right, as the world's biggest economy. Um, So what happens then, Andy? How does this play out potentially? Look, uh, um, the Chinese government is very worried about this. Okay. Number one, where is their investment going to come from? You know, older people have a propensity to spend. Uh, working age people have a propensity to save, right? So your national savings rate go down. Mm-hmm. And so the pools of capital available for investment start to dwindle. That's that's one immediate impact. But then you also have an impact on entrepreneurship and innovation. I think that's Young huge, right? societies are innovative, right? Mm-hmm. And then in raw terms, China's vast population, they have more engineers, they have more so, you know, they have uh, more scientists, um, and that population starts, starts shrinking with impact on, on human capital. Uh, Andy, just very briefly here in 30 seconds, is this something we need to worry about happening in the U.S.? The years-long U.S. baby drought worsened last year. Birth dropped 4% from 2019 to the lowest level since 1979. 20 seconds. Okay, big difference, immigration. If the U.S. wanted, it could open yeah. the border. China doesn't do immigration. It also sounds like this isn't... And it probably (laughs) won't for very complicated ethnic reasons, uh, reasons of social cohesion. They just don't open their borders. Minuscule numbers of Chinese people are immigrants, or people in China are immigrants. And this isn't a problem that China can just throw money at, correct? Just quickly. Absolutely not at all. In fact, this isn't a problem they can address at all. Told you. It's a must read. Always is. Andy Brown, thank you so much. Andy Brown, editorial director at Bloomberg New Economy. And of course, uh, check out, as I said, the New Economy daily newsletter at Bloomberg.com slash new hyphen economy. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. As we mentioned, big story from the weekend. We're still dealing with it. That cyber attack that crippled North America's biggest petroleum pipeline. We're talking about the Colonial Pipeline. Doug talking about uh, the stock impact. Uh, It's a critical source of supply for the New York region. The FBI, Tim, already attributing the massive breach to ransomware created by a relatively new gang. It's called uh, DarkSide. Yeah, uh, let's go right now to Andre Krell, founder and chief executive officer of LIFARS. The New York City Lab was established in collaboration with the FBI, DHS, and Secret Service to examine digital evidence of all forms of cybercrime. Andre joins us right now on the phone from New York City. Andre, thanks so much for, for joining us on this. When you see something like this happen, what is your first thought? Tim and Carol, thank you really for having me. My first thought is, look, we, we handle these 300 incidents like this every year. Mm. The cyber patients coming to my door on a daily basis. I feel like a cyber emergency doctor in a therapy. So for me, that's a normal day, right, to have like a 10, 16 victims calling and asking for help. Uh, what difference maybe right now is, is the press around and magnificent of the colonial. is like a 45%, I guess, of our East Coast supply. And also give the understanding that even such a big entity 
can be compromised and the uh, industrial control system, what they call industrial control system, the pipeline can be affected. Do you think the colonial pipeline is making a mistake by not asking for cyber support, support excuse me, from the U.S. federal government? Is that a mistake or is it better for colonial to remediate on its own? Uh, Carol, I do think they do. Uh, they're part of something called industrial control system joint working group mm-hmm. that's established at the DHS level. I do believe uh, that they are part of this working uh, joint group, and DHS holds at the John Selker era, uh, who was assistant director of agency, which we had a personal relationship with. They hold many of these exercises with uh, these systems. You have to think of these threat assets like a cyber sniper. It's not like someone is making mistakes. Like, whose mistake is that some of us gets called tomorrow? Like, should we brace someone for bringing the call to society or any kind of like a virus to society? I don't think there's really like a point of finger to say who is really guilty. Look, mm-hmm. these threat actors who are making 30, 40 million a year, wow. they have some level of sophistication. Like for example, there's a speculation in the market right now that Colonial was targeted because of uh, high ability to pay through their insurance program. Understanding is that, you know, such threat actors looking for 30 to 40 million, apparently Colonial holds such money to pay to on some insurance program. So I'm not sure that's true or not, but there's a speculation that threat actors actually pick them because they are able to pay. What needs to happen to get to a point where, where this just doesn't happen anymore, where this can be prevented? It, it looks like, like, let's face the reality. Uh, being a compromise, like for me, I tell you, being a cyber doctor, is just one of the life certainties, right? There is, there is no way to prevent cyber sickness, per se, in my opinion. Like, we're all going to get something, right? And the question is, is it going to be mild call to big cyber cancer? And is this something we can't answer? But what we can answer to prepare for it, like take all the vitamins, uh, you know, do a more holistic approach in cybersecurity, do more holistic approach in how we try to detect, uh, remediate these threat actors, how we actually detect them, and how quickly can we really deal with them when we detect them and isolate those systems that have been compromised. Most of the networks, for example, what happened to Colonial, it's, these threat actors going to come to your network. It's just a reality. Now, real question is, can you isolate them very quickly? Can you eradicate the threat? Can you disconnect and, and prevent lateral movement from more damage? And we've seen in society, in a pandemic, how we failed. Why do you think the enterprise system don't fail? They fail the same way hmm. as the whole society fell to pandemic. It's just the nature. We, we as a... Um, I would say computer architects never had to deal with this isolation like a zero trust issue. Mm-hmm. Like, how do we really operate? Like, when I can't trust you that you scare on the team on the phone, I never met you. How do I know it's really you? Mm-hmm. And how do I know it's really boom the radio? What uh, is this radio going to somewhere else? Andre, just got about 50 seconds left here. So, I'm, what are your, you say you get calls every day. So, is this just kind of part of our norm going forward? Carol, for me, it's been for the last 15 years. So yeah. uh, I can tell I've been running the cyber emergency room. This is a business what we do as a lifers. This is the digital forensic incident response. We also have an offensive team that's basically breaking this for clients uh, right. uh, being paid. And we do this like every day. This is what we're actually living in. So is, is it about, just quickly, we've only got about 30, 40 seconds. Is it about doing harm or is it just about finding entities that can pay the ransom money? And just quickly, if you could. It's really just getting paid. These criminals just want to get paid. That's all what they want. And it's easy. Two, three days, four days, holding ransom, get paid in the Bitcoins, disappear. And thanks to Momentum, what happened with the Bitcoin going up, 
Mm-hmm. Some of them acknowledge uh, Mr. Tesla and, and congratulate him that for Bitcoin going up. Well, good to check in with you. I'm sure you're busy, uh, as you mentioned at the top. So, Andre, thank you for your time again. Andre Krell, he's founder and CEO of the Cybersecurity Solutions and Services Company, LIFARS. He has done a lot of contract work for the Department of Justice and the Special Cyber Operations at the U.S. Air Force, uh, joining us on the phone in New York City. But a way of life? As the organization that has been connected to this pointed out in a, in a statement on the dark web earlier, uh, they don't want to necessarily cause harm. They're business people. Right. It's a transaction. But it's hard to do this without (laughs) causing harm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Because this pipeline has been down. Exactly. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. We are definitely, we talked about this story actually last week. It's in the current issue at Bloomberg Business Week magazine. It was a most read story in the Bloomberg when it crossed about, yes, women, Tim, are getting top jobs at fun houses, but just not the ones that manage money. Yeah, and it's a little surprising because there have been so many initiatives over the past 20 years right. to try to actually increase diversity. Joel Weber is editor at Bloomberg Business Week. He joins us from the New York City Bureau. Liz McCormick is bond and FX reporter at Bloomberg News. So, Joel, it's, it's surprising because despite years of initiatives, the statistics have not budged. What's going on? Yeah, and that's sort of what led us to want to kind of dig into it. And so when Liz um, uh, and Katie, um, her uh, co-writer on this, mentioned that um, it was a story that they were interested in, we sort of said, see what's going on there. And and what is interesting is that there are some some top jobs um, with some interesting um, developments and some some hires there, but the rank and file, we're still not really seeing much action there despite a lot of of push for it. So so Liz, what, what do you attribute that to? Well, it's interesting. Like Joel said, it's like in the middle is where, you know, we're hearing there's more women because to run a fund, there's the fund managers and then there's lots of strategists and analysts that help. And what it seems to be from our reporting and some of the data from Morningstar is that, you know, there are more women coming in and taking the roles of strategists and helping the fund managers, but there doesn't seem to be that many that are moving from that level to the next level. And there's a mix of reasons we can talk about why people think that is. Uh, and to be honest, Morningstar said they want to kind of dig deeper in the data to kind of see what you know what's coming up the wheels. Where is it not working to get them to the next level? Yeah, it's a head scratcher because you do see, as Tim mentioned, a lot of companies and initiatives to increase women, certainly at financial firms. And it doesn't look like the numbers are moving, as you reported. Tell me about the one woman that you profiled in your story. You talked to a few, but uh, you start off with Linda Zhang. Yeah, she was quite compelling and interesting. And it's, you know, she started her own firm. She's been at several big asset managers, started her own firm. And, you know, she didn't, you know, mince her words and said, I think there's still some biases in there that, you know, men feel comfortable letting, you know, women you know, kind of assist and give some advice, but, you know, for the firms to let them kind of run the fund themselves, she believes there's still some bias against that. Um, but we're seeing, like I said, with her, you know, she went on, you know, to start her own firm. And I, you know, was very happy to talk to Jean Hines, who's going to be the new CEO of Wellington. And I will say Jean is hopeful. You know, she's realistic, but she's hopeful. And she said, you know, 15 years ago, she was the only woman in the room all the time and now that's changing and she's hoping that maybe eventually like it's just a slow moving thing right that maybe since we're seeing some all these initiatives and some more women 
you know, research analyst that maybe the numbers give us five years, whatever, we're going to see more women fund managers. We can hope, you know, so it's nice to have hope, but it's, it's a little distressing to see the numbers. Well, Liz, another person, another woman you profile uh, is, is ARK Investment Management's Kathy Wood, who, who also started her own firm, started her own fund. Right, right. So it's interesting. It's like I have two young daughters in their 20s, both working, and I, they're not each in finance, but I like to show them these things to say, like, listen, there's a way, you know, and uh, some of these really sharp women, I guess, have said, like, listen, if, if this system isn't going to move me, I'm going to create my own, you know, create yeah. my own firm, do my own niche. And I, I think that's important. You know, there's, there's a way to do it. I remember I did a story a, a while ago, which was saying that women running fixed income funds or those funds that had women on it, Morningstar data showed the returns were better than just like <laughs> pure male-run funds alone, not mixed gender. And some women were saying, kind of it's crazy. It, you know, it should just go by the numbers. So I think these women are saying, listen, I'm, I'm confident myself. I'm doing well. My returns are good. I'm just going to start my own biz. So I, I think it's great to see. At the same time, you know, there's uh, the Gene Hines story is ultimately a, one of somebody who's persevered within a company for a long time. And, and like you mentioned, Liz, she's going to be um, CEO on, on July 1st. So so her route, I, I suppose, is sort of the one that a lot of of companies and other executives are hoping to emulate, where you can sort of rise through the ranks and, and eventually take over a fund and then become a CEO of a fund of funds, right? So, so what what does she talk about in her experience, since that's a pretty um, high-profile position that she'll be inheriting here soon? Yeah, she, she was really interesting, and she was saying not to minimize her talents, um, but she said, listen... I rose to these ranks, and she had a lot of good things to say about Wellington and what they've done, and, you know, she had a great mentor in Ed Owens that really helped. But she said, in some ways, I, I rose to these ranks not because the system facilitated it, just because it worked out. It had a good firm, a good mentor. You know, she's smart, et cetera, but it wasn't designed that way, and she was saying, so we need the, the systems to be designed, whether it's, and a lot of these women talk about role models, like people, you hear this about kids with doing different things, but same thing for any job. Young women need to see women doing it, you know, like, and say, oh, hey, I can be that, like someone like Jean to say, wow, I could be a CEO, or I could run a fund, or, you know, so I think they all feel like we still need more women role models, and yes. a lot of firms are working on that, but it's, yes, you know, yes, the more women yes, make Liz. it, right? <laughs> What's, right? ama what's amazing to me is that you would think that performance alone would just be like, well, wait a minute. If Morningstar has done the research and shows that women running fixed income, the performance is there better than their male counterparts, you would think that that would be a no-brainer, and it, it kind of boggles the mind here, Liz. Yep, yep. And it's funny, like, one thing, and I have heard this in other years that I've kind of followed this topic for a while. Maybe I'm biased because I'm interested in it, but I think mm. it's important to shine a light on it. Um, but that, you know, Tracy Chen, who's at Brandywine, who spoke to us, she said, like I've heard before, like also young women who we know there's a lot of initiatives of one daughter who's an engineer to get more women into STEM. But she was saying, but fund management, you don't have to be this super quant. And she thinks sometimes that keeps women away. She said, and it's true, like knowing history yeah. and geopolitics and all that right. is so important in making decisions on which stocks, which bonds. And so yeah. maybe we just need to give that message to young women that 
you know, you, you could come from a wealth of different backgrounds right. uh, as far as academic studies and well, come into this. It's a great story. And in the current issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine, Liz, thanks so much. Liz McCormick, she's Bond and FX reporter at Bloomberg News, along with uh, Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He is in our New York City bureau. Liz on the phone from New Jersey. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Tim, one of our top stories, certainly on this Monday, kind of is every day, and that is the latest on the virus and COVID-19. And we are seeing vaccinations being given out, slowing down. We've talked about that a lot here in the United States. And there were some comments by Dr. Anthony Fauci noting that COVID caused more deaths in the United States than reported. He caught up on Meet the Press over the weekend. Check it out. We've been saying and the CDC has been saying all along that it is very likely that we're undercounting. You know, the model says that it's a significant amount, as you mentioned correctly, 900,000. That's a bit more than I would have thought uh, the undercounting was. But, you know, sometimes the models are right online. Sometimes they're a bit off. But I I think there's no doubt, um, Chuck, that we are and have been undercounting. All right, so undercounting. Let's see what our next guest has to say about that and kind of where we are uh, when it comes to COVID-19. Bruce Farber is back with us. He is Chief of Infectious Diseases at Northwell Health's North Shore University Hospital and Long Island Jewish Medical Center. He's with us once again on the phone from Manhasset, New York. Dr. Farber, nice to have you here with Tim and me. How are you? Well, thanks for having me. Well, good to hear that. Uh, Tell us about your thoughts when you heard Dr. Anthony Fauci over the weekend. Um, What do we need to kind of understand uh, and the significance of his comments? Well, I don't think there's any doubt that we've significantly undercounted. That has always been uh, in play. You will recall last year when there was peaks, uh, many people died at home, never made it to a hospital. They never counted as COVID cases. Other people didn't count as COVID cases when they uh, were not diagnosed because we didn't have enough tests. Uh, There's no doubt in India that there's a dramatic undercount of people who are not making it into hospitals and being tested. Um, I I think we've always known that that's true. So does it does it change? I mean, since it's something that you've known, I mean, it's 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 not necessarily something that that I've followed closely, but as a medical professional, I mean, it sounds like that's something that ha- has been something that's been realistic throughout this. And I'm, I'm wondering to, to what extent you think about this from the perspective of, okay, people putting off uh, going to the doctor and then people getting sick from something unrelated to COVID, but in the end it is related to COVID because they didn't actually go and, and visit a provider. Yeah, absolutely. And in the beginning, even when people went, they couldn't, uh, the diagnosis couldn't be made because we didn't have enough tests. I mean, that's obviously not the case now. But I mean, something unrelated to COVID, like if they if they were scared in those first few months to actually venture. Oh, if you count people who, if you will, died of COVID who never had COVID. Right. That's what I mean. Malignancies and things. Exactly. Yeah, there was a there was a a huge uh, group of people. That's much harder to count. But there's no question anecdotally. We saw many people who had advanced malignancies that had been put off for many months, uh, heart attacks, pulmonary emboli, um, other medical problems that just were delayed because of fear of going anywhere. Yeah, no question. But is this about getting it right for the history book so that we understand the significance of this pandemic going forward and that might shape policy going forward, research going forward, the hunt for the next virus that might be problematic for our society? Yeah, I think it's it's all of those things plus others. It also uh, relates to 
you know, how we, um, how we consider this virus in terms of therapeutics, in terms of vaccinations, in terms of figuring rates of how vaccinations are going to prevent people in terms of understanding what variants would do to a population, depending upon whether our counts were right or wrong. So, yeah, it's important to get all those things right. This data drives our policies, or at least should drive our policies. Well, speaking of data, Dr. Farber, I'm looking at the latest data from New York City. The percent positive of people who've tested positive decreasing, confirmed cases decreasing, total cases decreasing, hospitalizations decreasing, confirmed deaths decreasing. Uh, how are you guys doing at, at Northwell Health? I mean, that all sounds great. We're doing exactly what you said. Our numbers are dramatically down. Every week they're down. Deaths are down. Hospitalizations are down. Um, new admissions with COVID are down. They're, they mirror exactly what you said. And, they're, and that rate, those rates have significantly fallen week after week, um, not just linearly, but, but even more and more. I mean, our numbers are so much lower. I think North Shore Hospital has roughly 40 or 50 COVID patients in it now. It was probably 120, 130 less than two and a half weeks ago. What are those cases like? What are the demographics on it? Uh, the demographics are, I mean, we used to think that we would see a younger group of people. We have predominantly seen, at least particularly in the, the very sick people, the same group, the elderly people with comorbidities who never got vaccinated. That's what's common to the people who are in our ICUs. None of them have been vaccinated. Hmm. Um, and that's, to be honest, to me, the most troubling and depressing statistic of them all. You know what? That's not something that that's not a way that we hear this communicated, Mm-mm. right? We don't hear. It's like, it's, it makes me think of the way that I was taught about smoking when I was a child and, and the way that uh, the, the imagery associated with that. And, and we don't necessarily hear public health experts talking about vaccination in the context of life or death. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that there's any doubt that no matter what you think of these vaccines, they are preventing hospitalizations and deaths. And although they're not perfect, and although they're not 100% effective, there's no question that you see very few people who have been vaccinated Mm. in the hospital. I've seen only a handful, but I've never seen any in in the ICU, and I've never seen any die. I'm not saying that couldn't happen, particularly in an immunosuppressed individual, but from a practical point of view, they're, they're so good at preventing that. So we've covered a lot of ground, and I think it was significant what you had to say about the demographics of folks that are in your hospital uh, coming down with COVID, that they are all people who didn't get vaccinated. So where do we go from here? What are your expectations about the rest of the year in terms of COVID? Because I think for a lot of us who've had the vaccine, we increasingly feel like kind of the world is ours again. Yes, I think most people should be optimistic. I think we're going to have a very good summer. Not only are rates down, not only are more people vaccinated, but we'll be outside. So I anticipate that our rates hopefully will go even below what they were last summer. Remember, last summer, even prior to vaccination, our rates fell dramatically. They're actually lower than they are right now in New York. And so I think we'll beat that and get better. Um, and that's all good news. The bad news is, I mean, we still have 25 percent roughly uh, hesitancy. And I think as a result of that, COVID will be in the background uh, basically uh, for, a, for a long, long time. But one thing that I still have trouble understanding, doctor, is natural immunity versus acquired immunity and versus vaccinations. So if the people who were eager to get vaccinated and even those who weren't eager to get vaccinated, but everybody gets vaccinated who wants to get vaccinated. And then so many people who've gotten COVID 
have immunity from that. Um, doesn't that give us an, uh, an achievement of herd immunity to a certain extent? Um, to some extent, but unfortunately, uh, natural-born immunity is certainly not uh, permanent. I mean, it's certainly very secure for three, four, maybe a little longer months, but uh. there's no question that you can get COVID over and over again. And regarding the vaccine, you know, I think we'd be naive if we thought that that vaccine is going to give you lifelong immunity. I'd be happy if it's two years at this point in time. I think mm. we should plan on the fact that we will need boosters on a regular basis. Some people will need them more frequently than others, depending upon their age, their immune system, and their comorbidities. How do we think about that at this point, where we're still dealing with just you know the first round of getting everybody vaccinated, but for those who've gotten vaccinated, how do we need to be thinking about as individuals about the next booster shot? I guess I'm assuming we'll get some kind of guidance from the FDA or the CDC? And are we keeping the infrastructure in place to make sure that that happens? Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt that our infrastructure and an extended one that will hopefully involve more community-based practices and eventually physicians' offices and more drugstores will need to be in place forever. Um, I I think we're naive if we think that we're going to reach herd immunity and COVID's going to go away and not come back. That's just not realistic. I don't think that'll ever happen for a wide variety of reasons, not the least of which is the hesitancy, not the least of which is the fact that there are variants. Mm. And, you know, the variants we have now, these vaccines are currently pretty good, not quite as good as as they are against non-variant or the ancestral strains, but they're pretty good. But that could change, and natural-born immunity is not going to be long-lasting, and certainly vaccine-induced immunity is most certainly not going to be lifelong. So when will it happen? Probably the beginning of next year. I think it'll vary. We need better vaccine correlates, meaning tests to say whether you're still immune or not, and they really haven't been worked out, but I think those types of tests will be much more likely to be available in the next six months. When you talk about immunity, and we've had some conversation, are you talking about the longer-term immunity would be T-cell immunity? Is that correct? Yeah, it's both B-cell and T-cell immunity, and we have pretty good ways of measuring B-cell and very poor ways of looking at long-lasting T-cell immunity. But that would be the holy grail, right? Yes. And And not likely anytime soon? Well, I mean, things happen a lot faster than sometimes I think. So I'm hopeful that by the end of the year, we'll have good vaccine correlates to know whether you're still immune or not. Mm. So kind of building on Carol's question from from earlier, what's just a realistic way for us to think about life? On, I, I always say on the other side of this pandemic, but it doesn't sound like we're going to get to the other side of this pandemic. And, 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 and when we say we might live with this, like the seasonal flu, you know, the seasonal flu doesn't shut us in. In, in homes, right? It doesn't prevent us from going to work typically, right? We, we live life. That's what normal is for us. Do we get to a point with COVID like that? Yeah, I think essentially it's going to be very similar to that. Obviously, there's profound differences between flu and COVID. COVID is much more deadly, right. much more serious, um, and is not as seasonal. Um, and so, but yeah, I do think we're going to get to normal. I think we're going to basically accept a background rate of morbidity and mortality with COVID that'll be much higher than it is every year with flu. But remember, there are anywhere from 25 to 65,000 people each year dying from flu. The overwhelming majority have are elderly and have underlying medical problems, but infants can, can certainly die of flu. And I think, yeah, that's going to be in the background. And hopefully we can just, you know, keep it at bay and, um, 
And I mean, we're not going to go, you know, the world's Mm. not going to be on lockdown forever. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Right. But I get the feeling that the background rate statistic will be something that we will kind of have with us for a long time. Dr. Farber, thank you so much. Uh, Really appreciate it and appreciate catching up with you once again. Dr. Bruce Farber, Chief of Infectious Diseases at Northwell Health's North Shore University Hospital and Long Island Jewish Medical Center on the phone from Manhasset, New York. We learned a lot there. We did. And look, like everything in life, it's about adjusting expectations. Right? You know? Right. Right. Thinking about expectations, being realistic about those expectations. Listen, I feel like humans are pretty flexible and can figure it out, and we do adapt. We adapt when we're resilient. Yeah, exactly. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, just about... 10 minutes uh, left in today's trading session. We're hovering uh, near our lows of the session. Uh, That bigger gain that we saw in the Dow Jones Industrial Average uh, running a little bit out of steam, but still holding on to a 30-point advantage. Both the NASDAQ, as you heard from Doug, and the S&P are down. The NASDAQ really taking it on the chin, down about 2.3%, down 310 points. Let's get into it with Steve Brown, Senior Portfolio Manager at American Century Investments, $230 billion in assets under management, co-manager on the company's real estate fund and global real estate fund, uh, the latter, by the way, beating most of its peers over the past five years, returning on average annually more than 9%, according to Bloomberg data. Steve joins us on the phone in New York City. Steve, good to have you here with us. Uh, what's the market environment like for you? It's, uh, it's been pretty good this year. Uh, last year was a difficult year for REITs because of the lockdowns and the concerns about rent payment. But this year, they're acting a lot better. They're up about 15% on optimism about reopening the economy. Well, it's got it's a geographic story though, right? Because it's all about where the economy is reopened and 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 where it's not. Well, uh, for the U.S. fund, uh, it, it's opening pretty much across the country, and we're having more success with the vaccines. And then both the the, uh, the Fed policy as well as the Biden administration are, are you know low interest rates and a lot of stimulus. That's good for the outlook for GDP growth. So we're seeing strength in a number of uh, property sectors throughout the country. Certainly housing-related property stocks are doing well, as well as uh, timber. And then some of the bombed-out sectors like retail uh, have bounced back very smartly this year in 2021. Well, let's talk about retail because Simon Property Group reporting after the bell today. And, and I'm, I'm wondering what you've heard and, and, and how you felt about the way that the, the company's talking about occupancy and the bounce back uh, after just a terrible year. Yes. So with Simon, they're the largest owner of regional malls in the country. And and last year, there were long periods of time when their malls were closed due to state mandates. Well, that's shifted, so virtually all their malls are open and ready for business. Also last year, they had, in the middle of the year, their rent collection was was close to 65%, so quite poor. It's approaching 90% now, or through uh, December 31st. We'll hear what happens tonight on the call. But we expect a further improvement in rent collection and then thirdly, uh, store closings in the first quarter of this year, first quarter of 21, were amongst the lowest in the last four or five years. So very little store closings. There were a lot in 2020, but very little in 21. 
And then leasing activity has been strong. So we think Simon can put up some good numbers and should have some optimism about the leasing progress for the portfolio in 2021. What happened to the expectations that real estate was just going to fall apart, commercial real estate in particular, because of the pandemic? Why didn't it? Okay. Uh, a couple of things. The concern was that uh, working from home was, was taking off and that a lot of some governments allowed rent moratoriums where people mm-hmm. didn't have to pay the rent. So there was concern about policy having a negative impact on real estate values. As we've moved into 21, you know, firstly, the, the first you know, piece of good news was sort of the announcement of a vaccine, whether it was from Moderna or, or Pfizer in November of 2020. That sort of turned things around in terms of the conversation. As we sit here in you know, mid-May, uh, the vaccine rollout in the U.S. appears to be successful. Governments are reopening. I believe New York State, New York City is going to be fully reopened by July 1st. So that's a positive and a change in, in mindset, getting back to you know, living, you might say. And that's been good for real estate in the sense that there's more confidence in the ability to cut rent in a timely manner. And there's more confidence that things will go back to normal. Now, normal may not really come to fro till, say, the fall of this year when many companies, whether it's in New York or Boston or L.A., et cetera, will begin asking their employees to show up for work a certain amount of time, whether it's three days a week or five days a week. But you'll get more of that back to back to normal scenario. And that's, and that's certainly a positive for real estate values and real estate activity. Sticking with retail, uh, what does is, what is long term look like for companies that own and, and operate malls as as retail shifts from I mean, it's a story that's been happening. It's been going on for, look, this is a, a long story now, right? The shift to e-commerce from brick and mortar and the, the move, at least with brick and mortar, to experiences. What does it look like? Sure. Um, we're not overly optimistic about the mall sector long term. We huh. think this year there could be a good bounce back. And Simon's the leading owner, so they own some of the most productive malls in the country. So they'll continue to gain market share. There will be some malls closing just because of difficult financial activities. But I think in terms of a Simon, uh, it, it comes into the year trading at 13 times earning. There's a lot of upside in their, their earnings power. So we like it over the next 12 months or so. Uh, where we're more optimistic is in community shopping centers that are grocery store anchored because they did pretty well during the pandemic as obviously people you know, were busy going to the grocery stores or having ordering pickup and deliver from the grocery stores. So their leasing activity is good. And we definitely like the long-term picture of open-air shopping centers. So uh, give us one in particular that you like. Uh, one we, we like is called the Bricksmore. Mm-hmm. It's a New York-based retail shopping centers throughout the United States. So it's, a, it's a nationwide portfolio. And they've been a beneficiary of the reopening trade. And they've been a beneficiary of, you know, very strongly. Their earnings came out last week. And they raised guidance for 2021. They had very strong leasing activity. They showed a big improvement in rent collection, and they had a uh, you know very minimal store closings in the in the first quarter this year. So again, they were a beneficiary of those trends. And then, grocery stores in general uh, had a good year last year, and they're looking to expand or sign new leases. So they should be a beneficiary of that trend also. Let's talk invitation homes real quick. Um, I'm I'm curious. <laughs> long-term changes that you're seeing during the pandemic is more and more people are priced out of actually owning a home and instead they choose to rent long-term. Yes. Uh, so what happened over the last you know, 12 to 15 months, we had the dramatic reduction in short-term interest rates by the Federal Reserve 
And so mortgage rates rates went down to you know three percent, you know, the lowest in ten or twenty years. And that did stimulate a housing boom, partly because of you know work from home and lockdowns in cities, people were concerned about quality of life as well as access to good public school. So people moved out to the suburbs, bought homes. Home prices over the last twelve months are up thirteen to fifteen percent. So home prices have gone up a lot, although the cost of money is, is cheap. Uh, we're at a point now where it's it's obviously uh, a toss-up between renting versus buying in terms of the cost. And with a company like Invitation Homes, which own homes, owns homes and rents them, demand has been very strong as people, as families, are priced out of the housing market probably because they don't have the 10 or 20% required for a down payment. Mm. But the, the demand for their product type, occupancies are very high, and their ability to raise rent is very strong. So we're quite excited about single-family rentals, such as Invitation Homes, as well as traditional apartment companies like UDR. All right. Going to leave it on that note. Hey, Steve, thank you so much. Steve Brown, he's Senior Portfolio Manager at American Century Investments. They've got $230 billion in assets under management on the phone from New York City. He mentioned invitation homes up about 18% so far this year. Little changed uh, last year. Simon Property, which will report after the closing bell, was up nearly 50% so far here in 2021, down about 43% uh, last year. So certainly we've seen, understandably, a bounce back. But we'll see what they have to say on their earnings call. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.